Amen. This time the children can be dismissed and go with our sprout workers. Let's give our sprout workers a round of applause for their work with our kids. Thank you, sir. Give my uh, armor bearer a round of applause here. I'm just playing. <laughs> and uh, turn in your Bibles to Hosea. Chapter 4. If you are uh, new to the Bible, you can easily find Hosea by finding this table of contents in the front of your Bible. Or on your iPhone, just scrolling down and finding Hosea. I realized in our house community this last week that nobody actually carries a paper Bible anymore. Everybody was like this. But I'm old school. All right, Hosea chapter 4, we are looking at a huge chunk of Hosea today. Um, What I want to do is actually just pray and ask for God's blessing as we study and as we read, and then we're going to dive into it. Let's pray. Father, we uh, do come into this passage with great humility, knowing that, um, that we need your help as we read, as we study, as we learn not just because it's a difficult passage, but because uh, of the hardness of our hearts. You have given us Your Word, yet because our hearts are hard, we often, so often, uh, don't hear it, don't receive it. So God, I pray that You open us up, that You convict us, that You open our minds, give us ears to hear so that we may hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hosea chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Follow along as I read. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away, yet let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity, and it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on tops of the mountains and burn on the hills under oak, poplar, terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. 
I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Let's skip forward to chapter 5, verse 8. Bless the Lord in Gibeah. Blow the horn in Gibeah and the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm in Bethaven. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The priests of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is, is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, when Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. And on the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. When I arrive at a text like that, and Monday morning, look at it, read it, this is what I'm going to be preaching on. I ask God, how in the world am I going to preach that? And not just this text, but like the rest of the book. Ten chapters of that. How in the world am I going to create a sermon, like, you know, within a two hour period, 45 minutes if we're lucky? that communicates whatever it is that's being communicated here. Now, as I was sort of questioning God and asking Him, how in the world am I going to preach this? It occurred to me that Hosea may have thought the same thing. You see, this is a sermon begun by Hosea. Let me give you sort of a quick recap here to show you what's happening in this book. The first three chapters are the story of Hosea and Gomer. So chapter 1, he gets married to Gomer. She's unfaithful to him. She gives him two children that are not his. And then chapter 2 comes along. She's now taking wages for her services. Chapter 3, it's gotten even worse, and she is being sold into slavery. And as we saw, chapter 3 is like this beautiful picture. Then Hosea buys his wife back and says that you're going to live with me, and you're going to be mine, and I'm going to be yours. Now, that sets the stage for what is about to come for his sermon. What is God doing here? What, why, why did he have Hosea go through three, those three chapters of that story, this life of, of pursuing an, a, a relentless love for a wayward woman? What is God doing? Now, let me explain it this way. I am somebody uh, who personally struggles with spiritual depression, if you would. Sort of like this melancholy that sweeps over me for, at periods 
for, for periods of times, at periods of times, whatever. And it's sort of like the pain in the world, just like it hits me, the pain and the, the reality of life, and I just feel everything, and I'm just kind of sad, and I'm seeing suffering for what it is, and I just want to weep, all right? Now, when I sit down with somebody, and I'm going to counsel on struggling with this kind of melancholy, or if I'm going to preach on verses that deal with spiritual depression, or hoping in God, hope, putting our hope in the finished work of God, if I'm going to be preaching on those things, I'm sort of like particularly prepared to do it. Because I can preach with passion as one who's experienced it. Experienced that struggle and that fight to put my hope in God, not in the things that I see around me. What God is doing is this. God has a message for Israel. And it's a, it's a very difficult message of Adult, spiritual adultery, running away from God, so this is what he does. To give the message, he prepares a preacher. He takes Hosea, and he gives him this wife, and he gives him this life, pursuing a, 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 an unfaithful woman who goes into prostitution, to prepare him to deliver this message to God's people. So his story of his wife it doesn't just become like an illustration in the rest of the book. It's not just like something that he'll use, like a personal example of, oh, this is what, something I experienced, and let me tell you how we fought through it and how you can fight through it with God as well. He actually doesn't even refer back to his story at all, the rest of the book. What that story of Hosea and Gomer does is it creates uh, a foundation from which Hosea now is about to stand and preach and give a word, give a message to the people of God. So chapters 4 through 14 is the sermon in which Hosea, after, after this experience with his wife, he looks at God's people and he says, this is what's going on. And God prepares him and has prepared him to speak in such a way. Now, I want to give you sort of a fair warning. It's hard. This is going to be hard. Not because it's like ten chapters that are hard to read. It's actually, if you read it, it's kind of interesting. There's a lot of word pictures and he's a good, good speaker. What's hard is the content that we're about to experience for ten, ten chapters. What's hard is the message that had to be delivered. So Hosea says, God, how am I going to speak this message? God says, I'll show you how I'm going to put you through the ringer of love so you can know what it's like to have an unfaithful bride. And then from there, I want you to, with vigor and power, speak this message to an unfaithful bride of Israel. Verse 1, he starts it out. He says, the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants. That's the beginning of his sermon, all right? So as if I were to stand up here and I were to look at you and say, God has a controversy with you this morning. You know, like it's downhill from there, okay? So let's just buckle our seatbelts. The Lord has a controversy with his people throughout the Bible. God has controversies with individuals and with groups, with heads of households for not leading their families well, with with churches 
who are putting up with unrepentant sin in their midst, with cities that are putting up with injustice in their lands. God has a controversy here with His people. And I want to just be careful here. I don't want to apply it too soon. But God has a controversy with us today. Let's just begin with that. What is the controversy? Let's look at it. There's no faithfulness in the land or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Verse 6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Do you know God? Now today in our culture, we usually respond with a yes, unless we're like a devout atheist. Most people I talk to on the streets claim to know God. I have, God and I have a very unique relationship, they might say. I know God. I, I have a, this, this, this feeling. Now, the crazy thing is this. Israel would have quickly responded, yes, we know God. As a matter of fact, they were still worshiping Yahweh. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, how they weren't just turning to Baal and just worshiping at shrines and at idols. They actually were still also worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel. So they were still worshiping God, but they were kind of doing both. So they were going to church on Sundays. They were doing their thing. They were even reading their Bibles and praying. But then they also had these other idols on the side where they were finding their hope and finding their identity. And so they would have quickly said, yes, we know God. When he says you're being destroyed for rejecting knowledge, for a lack of knowledge, you don't know God, they would be like, what? That's ridiculous. We do know God. They did not know God. I have a controversy. God has a controversy with you, he says. My goal today is this. Let me just state it up front. My goal is this, is that we would really know God. That we would know Him. If you're not a Christian and you're with us today, we are glad that you're here. And my hope for you is that by the end of today that you will know God. If you are a Christian... And you've been sort of like doing the whole church on Sundays, idols throughout the week. That you would hear God has a controversy with you. And that you would repent and that you would know God. And if you are a Christian, that you would grow in your knowledge of God. That you would be encouraged in your knowledge of God. So the way we're going to do this, the way we're going to sort of like examine our own hearts and selves and ask ourselves if we know God is by looking at Israel and the accusations against them show how it was that they did not know God, the results of not knowing God, and then we are going to examine our own hearts and lives. So first, Israel is being condemned here for a lack of knowledge. First, uh, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1, whoever loves discipline, how many of you love discipline? Whoever loves discipline, it says, loves knowledge. But the one who hates discipline is stupid. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. 
knowledge. We live in what is called the information age today, which basically means information is everywhere. It is at our fingertips. We love information. We love education. We appreciate higher education. We sort of praise the men and women who excel in their field and study hard. Today, we're proud of the fact that even a high school dropout can receive like practically, virtually a master's level education through iTunes U. Just get on iTunes. And I took like a whole philosophy course at this amazing school, and I didn't pay a dime for it. The information age, we can be educated, we love it. We love education, we love knowledge. Through our iPhones, just like pulling up Wikipedia really quick, we can hang with anybody in a conversation. Just keep Wikipedia there, you can enter into a conversation, just start like Googling, and you know, like War of 1812, I don't know anything about it, like failed history, ah yes, War of 1812. It started in 1812, <laughs> right? We can do that. We can fake it. We've got information. We've got knowledge. And we love looking smart. That's why I want like those glasses, the smart looking glasses, right? We love the smart look. Look, we live in the information. Here's the irony that I'm trying to paint here. While we live in this information age and we sort of praise education and studying hard, well done, We also live in an age that is ironically against the study of God. And I don't just mean like sort of in the secular world. I mean like even in the church. The Christian who enjoys studying theology and reading and loves like systematic the systematic study of God and grappling with the difficult doctrines is told by other Christians, just put the books down and experience God. Like, don't worry about education. Don't worry about growing in knowledge. Just like place your Bible beside you. Don't open it up. Just place it beside you and close your eyes. And maybe do this with your hands and let God start speaking. Like, but please don't use your brains. What an irony that is. And listen, what a trick of the devil. That we would love information, we would love knowledge, we would love studying hard, we would praise studying hard, but not when it comes to God. When it comes to God, just kind of stay stupid and just sort of experience however you feel about him in your mind. It's a trick of the devil. Like, we started Sunday school, like, when our elders were discussing a venue for teaching, the reason we started Sunday school was to intentionally combat this lie which says, put the books down and just close your eyes and experience God. Friends, we do. There is a moment where we close our eyes and experience God, but it comes through knowledge of God. Right knowledge of God, not wrong knowledge of God. Now, knowledge today, of course, is also discouraged in society. That's sort of a no-brainer, but it's worth stating. It was what was once seen 
as a, as a valuable field of study right along with science is now, of course, seen as something that's in the past, the study of theology that's nostalgic. Um, like, I could, if I talk about the degree that I got among a lot of my friends, it's sort of like a <laughs> get a real degree. Nobody cares about Koine Greek. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 6 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Where does knowledge begin? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Here's the irony today. The majority of the places where, where education is embraced, where we love the academics, are often the places where the fear of the Lord is absent. Yet the fear of the Lord is the very beginning of knowledge. So when you start to fear God, ah, you with a PhD, ah, now you're starting to learn. That's what the Bible says. So this is, this is the picture then that we receive of knowledge. And I'll just put this in, I'll, I'll paint a picture for you, all right? I, I think of Paul Rotman, who's right now in Portugal. Like, they flew him down there just to speak and give a little conference, all right? So we, smart dude. I think of Paul Rotman there studying in his lab, doing the scientist thing, looking through his microscope for eight hours a day, studying the microstructure of some piece of material, looking at atomic clusters, and then all of a sudden in a moment, being drawn into worship, being led in a moment as he sees these, everything at its micro level to be drawn to fear God. Oh, the great Creator of God, how great He is to create such perfection. That is now the beginning of knowledge. Or I think of Ivan as he's studying art and he just walks out and he's taking photos of creation and he's just lavishing it and just loving and embracing the, the color palette that God used in His creation and just experiencing that world of art then leads him into worship and into a fear, a reverence, a respect of God. Those of you who are students in here or who are studying an art or studying some realm as, as you go in life, does your knowledge, does your study draw you into a fear of the Lord? your study of government, your study of the way things are put together, your study of humanity, does it draw you to fear God? The beginning of knowledge is when we begin to fear God. Israel is uh, not condemned because they have a lot of information or because they know a lot. They actually knew quite a bit. They knew all about the other gods. They knew all about other customs and cultures. They are condemned because they do not fear God. They have information with no awe and reverence for God. 
Now, that's the problem. It goes deeper in verse 6. He says, not only do you not have it, but you reject knowledge. Meaning, they have, the ability is there. Like, God has revealed Himself to him in powerful ways. He's given them the Word. He's given them the experience. He's shown them Himself. They have no excuse. Yet they reject God. How might we reject knowledge today? Well, how do we know God? Jesus said it this way. Jesus said, Whoever knows Me knows My Father who sent Me. Friends, when we reject Jesus, we are rejecting true knowledge. When we reject Jesus, we are rejecting God. The problem with Israel is that they do not know God. Now, let's look at the results of not knowing God. Number one, their lack of knowledge is evidenced in a rejection of the law. Look at verse 6. He says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me since you have forgotten the law of God. So they do not know God. They reject the knowledge of God. And then it's evidenced in, it's first seen in their rejection of God's law. Look at verse 2. He says that in the land, there's no knowledge and there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They, bake, they break all bounds and bloodshed follows br- bloodshed. They're breaking the law of God. Look at it. Swearing. That's not just simply saying a four-letter word, but rather swearing an oath on something. Promising something that you won't fulfill. Or it could also be taking the Lord's name in vain. A violation of the third commandment. Lying, a violation of the ninth commandment. Murder, breaking the sixth commandment. Stealing, breaking the eighth commandment. Adultery, breaking the seventh commandment. What they are doing, guys, is as they reject the knowledge of God, they are breaking the law of God. They are rejecting the law of God. And it's leading them into a life with no morality. There's a spiral that's happening. As Gomer rejects her husband, rejects knowledge of her husband, what happens? Her life spirals into sin. So the spiral, let me show you three spirals. Let me just point out three that we see here. The first one is murder. He says bloodshed follows bloodshed. That means like as soon as this dude is killed, this dude gets killed. And their bloodshed is following bloodshed and their blood is running together. There is no morality in the land. There is murder after murder after murder. Today, I can't imagine that God's indictment of us would be any different. Now, we're not murdering the born, but we are murdering the unborn. By the end of this sermon, statistically, there will be 148 babies murdered in this country. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. I have a controversy with you, he says. Uh, Second, look at verse 11. The second spiral here, he says, because they've forsaken the Lord, they cherish whoredom and wine and new wine, which take away the understanding. So here's drunkenness, this picture of just, just getting wasted. Why? Why are they getting drunk? And why does he connect that to whoredom? Because it's the same thing. 
It's a, it's a desire to escape, just as you might run to sexual immorality and, and enjoy escaping this world through sexual immorality in the same way. The problem with drunkenness is that we use the grape to lead us away from creation. We don't want our feet firmly fixed in creation, but we want to tweak our minds so that we can be elsewhere, so we don't have to deal with the pain of this world. We don't have to deal with the problems and the conviction of sin. How often do we drink away the very conviction of sin that can lead us to repentance? See, the problem with drunkenness is that we do not want to be in the creation that God has given us, and we want to alter our minds and create a different reality a different world where we, where we don't feel the pain. God wants us to be firmly fixed here in this world, to have understanding of this world and, not, and, and the joys of this world, but also the challenges and the conviction that He brings us in this world. The third spiral here is they are then worshiping themselves. Look at verse 12. He says, My people inquire of a piece of wood. Now, everybody just say, that's stupid. That's stupid. Say it again, louder. That is stupid. Like they're inquiring, instead of God, they're inquiring of a piece of wood. In our family worship time last night, I read that and I loved the response of my daughters. They were just, they woke up. They're like, what? Why would they do that? That's dumb. Well, they've already rejected knowledge. Now, why do I say that they're worshiping themselves here? Here's why. God is the creator, and they are the created. And so they are to worship the creator. But like Adam and Eve, their father and mother, they want to be like God. Like those who built the Tower of Babel, let's create something that shows how great we actually are. That is the root cause of idolatry, and at the center of idolatry is me. It's myself, it's you, it's a desire to worship ourselves. We want to be like God. And so then we create things with our hands, and we create a walking staff and a piece of wood, and we hold it up and we say, look at how great I am. You are leading a team to accomplish a certain project and you are holding that team up and you say, look how great I am to put something together like this. Or things don't go well and your self-worth goes with it because you've been looking into uh, something that you have created for your worth. You create a song or you create a, a piece of art or a sculpture you say, look how great I am. We attach our worth to the things that we do with our hands. I heard someone say once that every pastor can find out who he's worshiping uh, based on how he responds to conflict in the church. If conflict in the church leads him to a lack of self-worth, then that means he is worshiping himself. He's putting together something to show how great he is. And that is for each one of us in our field of work, in our field of study, in our lives with our children, 
Do we look at our children and say, they need to behave right because they reflect me and people are going to look bad. They're going to look down on me if they misbehave. We worship ourselves. Do you see the spiral here that has taken place when we reject the knowledge of God? Secondly, the second result of rejecting God's knowledge is this. It's a spirit of whoredom. Look at verse 12. They sacrifice, he says, on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. So what he's saying, he's talking right there about idolatry. He's talking about how they're going to the shrines and they're finding these nice shade trees and there they are sacrificing. They're doing their thing. They're, they're worshiping these idols. And then he says this. This is very interesting to me. He says, therefore, everybody say therefore. That's that connecting word. Therefore, because of that, your daughters play the whore. Therefore, your brides commit adultery. What's he saying? He's saying that that idolatry, worshiping other gods, and whoredom, or let's just broaden that, sexual immorality, are made up of the same stuff. Let me rephrase that. A life of sexual immorality and a life of finding worth in other things outside of God is driven by the same Spirit. They are driven, he says, by a spirit of whoredom. And so here he's giving us a real-life, actual picture of this. He's like, look, you guys want to know, you get, like, you're upset because your, bra- your daughters are sneaking out at night and they're taking money for their services that they're providing to other men, and you're upset because your brides are getting into bed with other men. Which, by the way, Gomer wouldn't have been so unique in this culture. What Hosea was experiencing was probably the pain of a lot of guys. Wives that are cheating on them. He's saying, look, if you want to know why that's happening, you're driven by the same spirit as that of idolatry. You've turned away from knowledge of God. That same spirit has led you into sexual immorality. And then he points at the guys and he says, lest you start to point fingers yourself. God's not even, he says, right there in verse verse, uh, 14, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves are going to prostitutes. Like sexual immorality is rampant in the land and I can't imagine Hosea preaching this without passion and vigor in that moment. As he realizes, as he puts two and two together, the reason we keep falling into sexual immorality is because we have idolatry in our hearts. Why is it that we keep looking at pornography? It is because there is idolatry in our hearts hearts. We are seeking to find our worth and value in something other than God. Why is it that we keep getting into beds with people who are, we are not married to? It's because we have idolatry in our hearts. Whoredom, immorality, sexual immorality, and idolatry 
are driven, he says, by the same Spirit. The quickest way for us to fall into sexual immorality in our individual lives, in our church, is to turn away from God. It is to look to another God. It's to reject His law and then to be driven by a spirit of adultery. Now, the third result of not knowing God is this. It's in chapter 5. <clears throat> the third result of not knowing God is judgment. Chapter 5 could be called the judgment of God for our lack of knowledge. Look at verse 12 in chapter 5. I'm sorry, verse, verse 8. Blow the horn, he says, in Gibeah. The trumpet in Ramah. In the ancient world, when, when they were at war and the enemy would be drawing near the camp, they would pull out the ram's horn and they would blow the horn. They would pull out the trumpets and they would sound the trumpets which says the enemy is near, like things are about to go down right now. The battle is about to begin. God is saying this. God is saying, look, Pull it out. Israel, pull out the horn. Pull out the trumpets because I am on my way. I'm coming for you. I'm around the corner. The judgment of God is about to come down on Israel. Verse 1. <coughs> Verse 1, my judgment, he says, is for you. Verse 2, I will discipline all. Verse 4, their deeds do not permit them to return to God. Verse 5, the pride of Israel testifies to His face. Verse 6, I have withdrawn Myself. Verse 10, I will pour out My wrath like water. Verse 12, I will be like a moth to Ephraim and I will dry rot you. And verse 14 and 15, I will be like a lion. I will be like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. God will be like a lion. The jaw of which crushes the bones. The teeth tear the flesh. And He leaves Nothing behind carries off even the remains. The picture here is that Israel is as good as dead. As Gomer was as good as dead in the eyes of Hosea. Like Hosea was like, I'm done with you, not even mine. You're not mine. You are as good as dead to me. Israel is dead. Now here's the point that I want to make with chapter 5. The point is this. Judgment is coming. Judgment for, uh, for our, our, our lack of knowledge, for a rejection of knowledge, is coming. Destruction is not just mere talk. The wrath of God will be poured out like water. In Hosea's day, this was like literally like Assyria is coming and Assyria is going to be the arm of God's judgment as he takes them into captivity and leads them out of the land. But like all apocalyptic prophecy, 
in the Scriptures, there's a, there's a now but also coming type of fulfillment. Something that is broader, something that is deeper for each and every one of us, that the judgment of God will be poured out for your sin. It will not be recalled, he says. My friends who remove God of His wrath, remove God of His judgment, first of all, couldn't preach through the rest of this book and a lot of the Bible. But when we remove God of His wrath and His judgment for sin, we remove God of His perfect righteousness. We remove God of His perfect justice. Friends, God does not need a better PR agent. He doesn't need us to like come along and sort of like try to clean up the rest of Hosea and say, well, I know it sounds like judgment. I know it sounds like God saying my wrath will be poured out like water. But it's not really true. Like God doesn't really have wrath, even though it's, you know what I'm saying? Like what do we do with the rest of it? I mean, we're, 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 we're stuck here looking at the wrath of God coming for sin. Sins that look a lot like our sins today, don't they? Guys, God doesn't need us to sort of stand up and be better PR and make Him more palatable. Make Him look better for the lost. What we need is to see God for who He is. And that begins with His law, His perfect righteousness. It begins with Him calling Adam and Eve to walk with Him in their rebellion. It then goes on with our rebellion as a human race. It then leads us to see His holy, just, righteous, perfect, beautiful jealousy. And as a result, His anger. As a result, His wrath. Friends, we don't need to make God look better. We need to worship God in His wrath. Now, what do I mean by that? We've talked about Hosea and Gomer. We've talked about a a husband's rightful jealousy for a wayward wife. We've talked about a husband's rightful anger for a wife that's like sort of wandering off getting in bed with other dudes. When we remove God of His anger for sin, His judgment and His wrath, we turn Him into a weenie husband who just shrugs his shoulders at prostitution, just go on with your, with your bad self, do your thing, and I'll be home waiting for you when, when, when you want to come back. And we would look at that man and be like, dude, you are a fool. Friends, when we see God's wrath, when we hear of His anger for sin, it draws us into worship. Because it's there that we see, begin to see His love. His love and His wrath are two sides of the same coin. Let me show this to you. Look at verse 15. He says, I will tear and I go away. I will carry off. No one shall rescue. I will return again to my place. This is God talking. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress, earnestly seek me. 
You see, the law of God is given to us for the very purpose of crushing us. For the very purpose of showing us how fallen we are. For the purpose of teaching us about sin and what sin is so that we may earnestly now seek Him. So that we may be knocked down and look to Him. C.S. Lewis in his uh, series, The Chronicles of Narnia, he paints a picture that, that perfectly illustrates what Hosea is about to say here. These verses that we're about to get into and end on. Lewis paints this picture of this boy named Eustace. And Eustace is described as an arrogant, self-centered boy. He's actually pretty mean. At some point in the story, his greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart actually take over his body and he turns into a dragon. That's a problem. And it's a problem that Eustace can't reverse. He later says, as much as I tried, I couldn't change myself back. And it wasn't until he met the lion that he was changed. Now what happened when he met the lion? When he met the lion, the lion in his fierce power attacks the dragon, tears at his flesh, pulls off his skin, leaves the dragon dead, and then finally on the ground there is a little boy who is meek and humbled and changed. Look at the verses. He says, come, this is Hosea now directing his attention back to the people of God. He says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Ezekiel 15, 26, I am the Lord that heals you. Deuteronomy 32, 39, I kill and I make alive, I wound, and I heal. How does the lion conquer? The lion who is creeping, the lion who is seeking to devour you, how does he conquer? How does he conquer in the sense that he turns you back to him? How does he get us to go from wandering out there, uh, uh, driven by the spirit of whoredom, to earnestly seeking the Lord. How does He conquer? Let me show you. I, I want you to turn to the end of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 5. It's the very last book in the Bible. Revelation chapter 5, verse 4. And I began to weep loudly. This is John writing. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Meaning what John's saying here is, is like there were these scrolls and the scrolls, if they were opened up, that would be sort of like redemption. Like whatever it is that would cause us to turn back to God so that we may know the Lord. There was nobody worthy. Nobody worthy who would turn back. Nobody worthy who would stand before the Lord in righteousness. Nobody who could cause us to look to Him. And so John is weeping here. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So he's saying, this elder comes and he says, look, stop crying. There's the lion. the, The lion of the tribe of Judah. He has conquered. There's that image, that picture that we see there in Hosea chapter 5 and 6. But how does the lion conquer? How did he do it? Verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. In the Old Testament, a lamb was a picture of this, the, the sin that was placed of Israel, the guilt that was placed onto this innocent lamb, slaughtered, cut, and then with the lamb, with the death of the lamb, the guilt would be removed. That was the picture that was looking forward to the lamb. How does the lion conquer? This fierce, devouring lion, it conquers through becoming a lamb. Through being led like a lamb to the slaughter. Let's see it right here in Hosea 6, verse 2. After two days, He will revive us, and on the third day, He will raise us up. Everybody go, hmm, I wonder what that's referring to. Like, isn't that amazing? A couple hundred years before Jesus ever came, we see a picture of on the third day, He will raise us up. As soon as he refers to the lion, as soon as he refers to this lion who's seeking you and is going to devour you and destroy you, but yet he's going to build you back up and give you life, he then turns and he gives us a glimpse into the lamb. Into the lamb who died on the cross for our sins. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, what we see here is that judgment of God will be poured out. It's as good as done. The wrath of God will be poured out like water, but here's what we see and here's the gospel. All of that that we see in chapter 5 that could have been for us The destruction, the judgment of God was poured out on the Lamb. And He absorbed it. He received it. God made Jesus the satisfaction of His judgment. He who knew no sin, the Bible says, became sin for us so that we might be called righteous. In verse 2, There's also this sense that we have died with Christ. So as the lion conquers us, as he cuts us, as he tears us, he kills us. We were dead as Israel. Israel was no more. Yet God is the God who says, I will revive. We died with Christ. Our old dragon nature was put to death on the cross with Christ. And after two days, He will revive. And on the third day, He raised us up in newness of life. As a new creation. What was it that we just saw happen earlier today? We saw five individuals who are identifying with this people of God. 
who have found themselves on the cross with Christ, dying the death with Christ. They see themselves in Christ. The judgment of God comes like water over them. I will pour out my wrath like water. I will cover you. They identified with that death of Christ and they have been raised to walk in the newness of life as a new creation. The dragon is forever put away because the lion has torn us. And he's come like a lamb so that we may be raised from the dead to walk in the newness of life. That is is good news. Amen? Look at this last line, and this will be the last line of the sermon. He says, that we may, He's raised us up so that we may live before Him. How is it that we were, how, how can we live before God? How can we sort of rest in the goodness of Him? How can we just in, in the midst of your problems at work and the difficulties and the stress of life, how can you just stop and just Remember that you are living before God in openness and in honesty and that the work is finished in your life. How is it, this next line, he says, that we may know, that we may press on to know the Lord. How do you know God? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. When one turns to Christ... The veil is removed. When one turns to Christ and they see the lion that became the lamb to take away your sins, when we look to Christ, the veil, which means like the blinders, are removed and we know God. We see Christ and we see the fullness of God. We look at the face of Christ and we see the Creator. We worship Christ And we worship Him. I once was dead in sin. The song that we sang this morning. Alone and hopeless. A child of wrath I walked. Condemned in darkness. But Your mercy brought new life. And in Your love and kindness raised me up with Christ and made me righteous. Our condemnation was certain. The wrath would be poured out like water and the Lamb hung on the cross to receive The judgment that was ours, the wrath was poured out on Him like water. Knowing God is knowing His law, is knowing His righteous standard. Knowing God is knowing His justice, knowing the punishment for breaking the law. Knowing God is seeing Jesus as the Lamb who takes away our guilt and has bought us back with His own blood. His blood is enough. His blood is enough to forgive your rejection of His law. His blood is enough to forgive your immorality, your whoredom, your idolatry. His blood is enough to forgive your pride. His blood is enough to forgive your drunkenness and your desire to escape this world. His blood is enough to forgive you of worshiping the things that you have created with your own hands. His blood is enough to forgive you from worshiping yourself and what people think of you. His blood is enough to forgive every every grumbling that you had this past week. 
His blood is enough to forgive your temper tantrums and the anger that you have had with those around you, your family members and your children and your boss. His blood is enough to forgive all of your sins. You have been bought back with the riches of His amazing grace and relentless love. I'm made alive forever with you, life forever. By your grace, I'm saved. How is it that you know God? By turning to Jesus. And the blinders, the veil is removed. You see Jesus. And you see God. You see Jesus. And you know God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You seal these truths in our hearts, that You take this fairly difficult message, this Word that You gave to Your people Israel, and we believe that it's alive and active for us today as well as the Holy Spirit speaks to us. (coughs) We ask that You take these things, convict us, crush us under the law so that we may see Christ, that we may turn to Christ. God, encourage us in our faith. Let us see how so much of the stress and the worry that we are stuck with throughout the week is simply a result of not looking to Christ, not finding our worth in Him, not trusting in His finished work. May we know Christ so, so that we may know You. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.